Hello and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Over the coming weeks we hope to explore some of the many reported cases of reincarnation. Reincarnation is a concept that has been met with some degree of scepticism over the years, but as our civilization has progressed, the level of documentation has increased and it's becoming easier to find information about the lives that have gone before us. My hope is that we'll start to find more and more provable cases in the coming years and give reincarnation a more mainstream appeal so that we can bring the discussion out into the light and explore the possibility of what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Dr. Jim Tucker, child psychiatrist and Bonner Lowry Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Dr. Tucker investigated Ryan's case and all of the incredible information comes directly from his research of the case. His book, Return to Life, can be purchased from all good booksellers and online through Amazon.com. I'd like to thank Raphael Crux as well for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. This case is one of the newer cases of reincarnation that has come to light, and it's also one of the most extensive cases, as there's a lot of information recorded and documented, and a lot of facts to check and prove. It's also a case that's given me a lot of optimism about the provability of cases that will come to light in the future because with every best intention, this is a case that so nearly remained unverified. Unlike our last case, information about the archival case was so sparse initially and the person was so difficult to find that it is possible that it could have not occurred at all. However, when the connection between the two lives was finally revealed, a literal avalanche of information was received and over 50 different instances of Ryan's recounted past life memory could be proven and linked to the life he remembers living before. There's so much information in fact that this case will be a two-part episode so that I can do justice to all of the facts and provide you with as much information about it as possible. Our story today begins in Oklahoma in 2011, but very quickly slips back through time to deposit us into the glamour and style of 1940s Hollywood. Cindy Hammonds is a county clerk deputy in Oklahoma and Ryan's father, Kevin, is a police officer. Cindy grew up attending the Baptist Church and Ryan's father is the son of a Church of Christ minister and neither of these religions espouses a belief in reincarnation. When Cindy married Kevin Hammonds, the couple made the decision that they would only have one child together, as Kevin already had two children from his former marriage. So when she found out she was pregnant, knowing she only had one chance at achieving it, she yearned for a daughter. When the doctor told her she was having a son, she grew angry at the doctor and told him he was wrong and that she was having a girl. She left the doctor's office and went out for dinner with Kevin to celebrate his birthday and broke down into a crying jag that lasted for a long time. Of course, cry though she might, Cindy was destined to have a little boy in 2005, whom she named Ryan. Ryan started recounting his memories of a past life as a four-year-old boy. One night, Ryan came over to her and asked Cindy why she thought that he was going to be a little girl. When Cindy asked him who told him that, he said that no one had told him and that he saw it from heaven. He said, this doctor guy did a test and told you I was a boy. You got mad and said he was wrong. You just knew that I was going to be a girl. Mummy, it was Daddy's birthday and you went to a restaurant afterward to eat and you cried for a very long time. Cindy was shocked 
as Ryan had reported everything exactly as it happened, and she's regretted acting that way ever since. At approximately four years of age, Ryan started talking about another life he remembered living. When he was a preschooler and he was playing, he would often shout action and start directing imaginary movies. He once said, I used to be big, now I'm little. Another time he said he liked it better when he was big and could go wherever and whenever he wanted to go. I hate being little, he said. He would cry and plead with his mother to take him back to his home in Hollywood so that he could see his other family. Then things became more distressing when Ryan started having nightmares and he would wake saying he couldn't breathe. He would tell his mother as he clutched his chest, When I was in Hollywood, my heart exploded. One night at bedtime, Ryan said he didn't want to go to sleep because he would have nightmares again and he started crying. He cried for about 30 minutes, saying repeatedly, Mummy, I'm homesick. I'm just so homesick. One night, Ryan wanted to tell Cindy what it was like when you died. He began describing an awesome white light and said that when you die, you should go into the light. He said he went somewhere after he died, but it wasn't heaven. It was a waiting place. He said that everyone comes back and he claimed that he had known Cindy before. As with a lot of these cases, Ryan claimed that he saw his parents from heaven and picked Cindy to be his mother so that he could come back and look after her. As Ryan seemed to be struggling with the memories and nightmares he was having, Cindy decided to see if she could find out more about life in Hollywood. So she went to the library and picked up some books about movies and Hollywood history in the hopes that Ryan might see something or perhaps recognise a landmark or two that might trigger memories that were more specific. As they browsed through the book, Ryan became very excited when he saw a photo of Rita Hayworth. He said he knew her and that she used to make those ice drinks. He later said she called them Coke floats. Another book provided a photo from a 1932 movie called Night After Night, and this shot provided the breakthrough that Cindy had been looking for. Ryan saw the picture and became excited again. He pointed to a man in the photo and said, Hey, Mama, that's George. We did a movie together. And Mama, that guy's me. I found me. The photo showed a scene from the movie where six men were all standing together, their eyes focused on the two men in the middle, who were having a confrontation. The man that Ryan pointed to was a man on the side wearing a black bow tie, a bowler hat and an overcoat. The first person he pointed to was George Raft, who was a well-known movie actor in the 40s who frequently made gangster movies. However, the person he pointed to that he identified as himself was an extra in the movie with no speaking part and therefore was not identified in the credits. This seemed like an important lead. However, there was no way to discover who this mystery man was. At this point, Cindy and Ryan became stalled about how to find out more information. So let's run through some of the interesting facts that Ryan related to about the movie Night After Night. Ryan recounted a scene in the movie where there was a closet full of guns. Ryan was a four-year-old boy at this time and he'd never even seen a black and white movie let alone a gangster movie called Night After Night. But when you watch the movie, there is in fact a scene where there is a closet full of guns. Ryan said he'd been friendly with a cowboy that was in the movie. 
He said this cowboy did tricks with a horse he owned and that he also had made cigarette commercials. After doing some searching, Ryan's parents discovered that there had been an actor called Gordon Nance who was in Night After Night. He had subsequently changed his name to Wild Bill Elliott and starred in Westerns while being a spokesman for Viceroy Cigarettes. Ryan was becoming despondent about not being able to contact his former family. He said that the reason he had come back was because he hadn't spent enough time with his family in his last life. He had worked so much that he forgot that love was the most important thing. He was also starting to resist going to kindergarten as he told the class about Hollywood being a talent star in a talent agency in story time and had been teased by the other kids when he told them that the stories were real. As time went on and he reached the age of six, his memories of his past life were starting to fade away and he was really upset about not being able to find his family. Cindy was on the horns of a dilemma. She wanted to help her son, but she had no idea how to find out more about this unnamed actor in an old movie. So she wrote a To Whom It May Concern letter to Jim Tucker's office, asking if there was any way he could help her to identify who this person might be. Jim Tucker was interested in the case from the facts that Cindy had told him in her letter and wrote back to Cindy, asking if she and her family would be open to him visiting them. The family were delighted and welcomed him. Dr Tucker himself was impressed by the family, feeling that both Cindy and Kevin were honest and down-to-earth people with no hidden agendas. He wrote that they even insisted on paying when they all went out for dinner one night, even though the meal could have been claimed on Dr Tucker's expense account. So it didn't appear that they were hoping to achieve any kind of remuneration out of the visit. Dr Tucker relates in his book that Cindy and Kevin came across as completely sincere and there seemed to be no chance that they'd put Ryan up to saying the things that he had. At around the time that Ryan came to Dr Tucker's attention, the psychiatrist had been approached by a television crew who wanted to put together a program about Dr Tucker's work. They were initially interested in one of the stories of another family that Dr Tucker had researched, but as they discussed it further with that family, they pulled out. Dr Tucker then suggested that perhaps they might be able to record this unfolding case instead. He felt having the film crew, with its investigation and research specialists on it, may help them to find the elusive unnamed man in the photo, as Dr Tucker had realised how difficult it was going to be. If you search now for Marty Martin on the internet, there's a lot of information about him, but that has all been generated because of Ryan's case. When Dr Tucker was searching, Marty Martin, even if they had had his name at that point, was a complete unknown. So Dr Tucker asked Ryan's family if they might be willing to be filmed. He explained that it was completely their choice and would not alter his commitment to Ryan's case if they said no. Dr, Dr. Tucker felt that the case was a good one with a lot of strong evidence and explained it might be their best chance of finding out who the man in the picture might be. Cindy and Kevin were concerned as they came from a small town and they were afraid there might be some fallout from people who knew them when they saw the program. It must be remembered that Kevin is a police officer and there's an unspoken requirement of reliability, dependability expected of law enforcement agents, so this may have caused him some problems in his career. 
But Cindy had also recently watched a documentary on cases of children like Ryan and she felt that it was important to speak out about it as it might help someone else going through a similar thing. They finally agreed to the filming so long as they could use pseudonyms and stay shadowed in the background. However, Ryan objected to being filmed in the shadow. He felt that what he was going through was real and if his parents believed him, they wouldn't want to be hidden. This put Cindy and Kevin in a tough spot and Cindy's family was against the idea but she didn't want Ryan to think that she and Kevin were ashamed of him so the family eventually opted to be revealed on film. The filming that commences from this point was used to create an episode of The Unexplained, A Life in Movies. Cindy was an excellent recorder of the events surrounding Ryan's memories and she sent Jim Tucker updates frequently, sometimes daily which provided a large amount of detail of the life that Ryan had lived before. The decision to have the research recorded ended up being a two-edged sword. While it ultimately led to the revelation of who the actor was, it caused a lot of stress and caused Ryan to put up barriers about speaking about his past life at a later point. The TV crew thought they'd figured out who the man in the photo was. They thought he was actor Ralph Harold, but they based this solely on their belief that Harold looked like the man in Night After Night. Dr Tucker wasn't as sure about this identification as he looked at some photos of Harold and wasn't convinced the two men were the same. Dr Tucker found Harold on the census records and saw that he appeared to be an only child, even though Ryan had talked in length about one sister and mentioned another. The few de details he had found about Harold at that point did not match up with the memories Ryan had been relating. The crew took Ryan to Hollywood to see if he would remember anything more or recognise landmarks. Dr Tucker had wanted to accompany the family, but he couldn't get his schedule to line up with the crew schedule, so the family ended up having to go alone with the crew. Things didn't go well. Ryan was keen to get out and explore Hollywood, but because the TV crew wanted to capture Ryan saying something extraordinary on camera, they sent him through another interview in the hotel room. Ryan became aggravated and became closed down about it, admitting only that he liked the hotel they were staying in to his parents when they were off air, which had been built in the 20s and that he thought that he remembered it. Then the crew took Ryan to see two homes where Ralph Harold had lived, but he didn't recognise either of them. He did recognise the house of Wild Bill Elliott, the actor from Night After Night that he'd been friends with. It was after these events that Ryan became less willing to speak about his experiences as he felt the crew were trying to make a joke out of him and had deliberately lied when they told him Ralph Harold was the man he remembered being. He said it wasn't fair that he couldn't remember his name. He did also remember the ocean and Cindy felt that he loved being back. He commented that he used to take his girlfriends there and there are numerous pictures of Marty Martin at the beach with different girls. But the trip was mostly a bust and Ryan was left with a feeling that they didn't believe what he was saying. He continued to talk about past memories however, not just of Hollywood but New York as well where he said that he played piano. Six weeks after the trip to Hollywood, Dr Tucker received an email from the producer of the show who said, please call when you have a moment. We've had a breakthrough on Ryan's case. We have definitely identified who the actor was. Dr Tucker called Russ Stratton, the director of the TV show, 
Stratton had been dissatisfied with the Hollywood trip and was very unhappy with the research done, as the team had simply looked at the two actors and compared them and assumed they were the same man. Russ had hired an archival footage consultant named Kate Coe to find out who the man really was in Night After Night. She initially thought the job would be easy. As she commented on The Unexplained, she suddenly realised, oh, wait a second, it's an uncredited extra. It's some guy in a hat. After asking around her colleagues, no one could identify the man, so she finally went to the Library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and got all the material available on the movie Night After Night. Most of the material she obtained was about the stars, however she spotted a picture of the man she was searching for. He was looking into the camera with a long cigar in his mouth and a bowler hat on his head. The picture just listed the name of the movie and the stars. However, on the back of the photo was this description. What the well-dressed racketeer will wear. Marty Martin playing a racketeer in Paramount's Night After Night with George Raft, Constance Cummings, Wynne Gibson, Mae West and Alison Skipworth gives a demonstration of the underworld's sartorial elegance. So as you can see, finding Marty Martin before his story hit, was like searching for a needle in a haystack. And if that one photo had not listed his name, Ryan may never have known the man whose life he was recalling. The detail that Ryan remembered about his past life is incredible. It was a life so rich and filled with varying experiences that at first Jim Tucker was a little sceptical. It sounded unbelievable that an extra with no lines in a movie would have done all the things that Ryan said he did. However, Ryan's recall matched on over 50 details with the life that Marty Martin lived. So what were some of those details? Ryan talked a little bit about Broadway. He began doing a tap dancing routine one day after listening to a commercial and said that he remembered it because the music was similar to the music he used to tap to. He said he didn't have formal lessons, he taught himself. When the family was packing for a trip to Branson, Missouri, Cindy told Ryan he could dress up when they went to see a show there. Ryan responded, oh, Mum, I hate auditions. The play they went to was a tribute to veterans. During a piece on Pearl Harbor, Ryan became very emotional. Halfway through, he began muttering about the damn Japs. I apologise for using that term, and I'd ask listeners to remember that information provided does not reflect the views and beliefs of people that make this podcast. Ryan cried during the presentation and stood up to applaud the end. If we could ever find Marty Martin's voting ballot, I would bet good money that he was a Republican because Ryan has memories of meeting a Senator Five. He disliked this Senator intensely and described him as the nastiest villain that ever lived and claimed he had nightmares about him. There was no Senator Five, but there was a Senator Irving Ives who was a Democrat and worked with John F. Kennedy later in his career. From what I can find about Senator Ives, he had a respectable and honourable career and was not involved in any dishonest or dishonourable activities. Interestingly, Marty did indeed meet Senator Ives from New York as his daughter has a photo of the two men together. There is no sign that Marty felt the same animosity towards Senator Ives that Ryan described. Ryan also booed when Franklin Roosevelt was mentioned in the Veterans Play. And when his father admonished him for it, he turned to his mother and said, Daddy doesn't know what an idiot that man is. However, he would say that he loved Theodore Roosevelt and thought he was the best president ever. 
Ryan had extensive recall about his private life. If Ryan saw a shot of the Hollywood Hills on television, he would always say, that's my home, that's where I belong. At one point he said, I just can't live in these conditions, my last home was much better. He made a lot of statements about his family and his life. His mother said to Ryan before the Hollywood trip, Ryan, you do know that you're not the man in the picture anymore. We just want you to be Ryan. Ryan replied that he was not the same as the man in the picture on the outside, but on the inside, he was still that man. Ryan said his mother had curly brown hair. He talked about a sister who was three years younger than he was. He talked about a daughter and how his wife liked to put her hair in either pigtails or a ponytail. He also remembered three other children, but he wasn't sure if they were his children or not, but he used to bring them elaborate colouring books. He said he drove a green car, but his wife had a nice black one. One day while watching TV, he said, Mum, just get me a true aid. She said, what? He said, oh, I mean a Dr Pepper. Cindy did an online search and found that true aid was a non-carbonated soft drink that came in orange and grape flavours. It seemed to have been made from the 40s to the late 60s or early 70s before being discontinued. Cindy showed Ryan a picture of an ad for True Aid and he laughed and said, you can't get that stuff anymore. Now I just drink Dr Pepper. External occurrences could trigger a memory for Ryan. Cindy was patting Ryan's leg one afternoon and he said it reminded him of when he was in Hollywood and he used to get those skin burns. Cindy asked him if he meant sunburn and he said he used to get them all the time in Hollywood. Marty Martin was a sunbather and frequently got sunburns. Ryan said that he worked in New York and Marty Martin danced on Broadway. Ryan said that he then went and worked in the movies, which Marty Martin also did, mostly working on dance. Ryan said that he was an agent who changed people's names. Initially, his mother thought that he was talking about being a spy or a secret agent of some kind, but in actual fact, Marty Martin started a successful talent agency that made him very wealthy and of course, as a talent star, he would have changed the names of many budding actresses and actors to make their stage name more appealing, in the same way that Norma Jean Baker turned into Marilyn Monroe. Not only did Ryan remember Rita Hayworth, he also remembered Marilyn Monroe, whom he called that Mary Lady. He spoke of a night where he was at a party that Marilyn Monroe was at and he tried to talk to her but her studio miners were extremely protective and not only did he not get close enough to talk to her, he laughed as he recounted that he also earned himself a punch in the eye from her minder. Ryan remembered travelling overseas on ships and travelling around Europe, which Marty Martin did. He talked about travelling a lot. He became excited when he saw a small cafe once with outdoor seating, saying the place reminded him of Paris, where he went and saw the big tower. He asked his mother what the name of the tower was, and when she told him it was the Eiffel Tower, he said, that's it, Mum, I've been to the Eiffel Tower in Paris. When Cindy questioned if he'd really been there, he said, yes, Mummy, I've been to China, Paris, New York. When are you going to listen to me? I have seen the world. One day he came into the kitchen and asked Cindy if they could dance together. He said, Mummy, I can't wait till I get big again and I get to go on those big boats and wear fancy clothes and dance with all the pretty ladies. That's how you see the world, Mummy, from a big boat. He mimicked dancing what appeared to be a waltz and said that dipping was his favourite part of dancing on a ship. He talked about China and how you use chopsticks. He asked if they could go to a Chinese restaurant and Kevin was amazed at how proficient Ryan was with his chopsticks. 
Ryan replied that when he visited China, you had to get good at using chopsticks as they didn't have silverware. Marty Martin also travelled all over the world on boats. So at this point I think we'll leave Marty to his travels for a moment and return with part two of his incredible story in our next episode. Join us next week to hear even more of the incredible story of Marty Martin and Ryan Hammonds and their shared life experience. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate past life experiences, I can be reached by email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or through my website reincarnationplr.com and I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to keep up to date on my latest podcast posts, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and you can find me under reincarnationplr. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. Thank you.